listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I don't have to tell you about how intense it has been in this country over the past 12 to 18 months as we've been wrestling with and dealing with conversations about race and injustice and uh, and inequality in that still remains in this country. And indeed, many of us may be somewhat fatigued and tired by the conversation and the intensity of it. But here's the deal. It's not a new conversation. It may seem to be a little bit more uh, uh, ramped up these days, but it is not new. I remember a few years ago, this is back in uh, 2013, even before all of the current intensity, there was a conference on on the issue of race and justice uh, in the t- church in the 21st century. It took place at uh, Mount Helm Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and Mount Helm is the oldest uh, black church in Jackson, Mississippi, and this church began in 1835 with several enslaved black people worshiping in the basement of First Baptist Church of of Jackson, and they discussed at this conference some hard truths on how the church in America had failed by putting ethnicity over unity. And there's no shortage of statements, of commitments, of actions promoted by the church in the history of this country that that turns our stomachs. I was born in 1968, and a year before that, more than 16 states in this country still uh, prohibited and punished interracial marriage. There was certainly no major outcry from the majority of the church in this matter. Indeed, in 1959, a Virginia trial judge, in a case, uh, his he he stated his legal rationale for justifying the constitutionality of the prohibition against interracial marriage. And this is what he said: He said, "Almighty God." created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his this arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. Things like this are hard to hear and frankly not surprising. And I lead into this message with it because there's a, there's a certain going in that that needs to take place uh, the terrible history of of race in the church in America is is real but I want to invite us to to go into this text in a particular way and here's what I mean the church was never problem free but what we have in these four verses is like a treasured picture in your family photo album. 
It is a snapshot of Christian history, of real Christian history that points the way forward for the church. And so I want to invite us to to go in and take ownership, take ownership of this heritage uh, of God's people as what we ourselves must be determined to pursue. God, God created a need for these two large early Christian communities, the predominantly Jewish mother church in Jerusalem and Judea, and the predominantly Gentile church of Antioch, to recognize their need for one another and to exhibit a Holy Spirit-generated solidarity in Jesus Christ. At this point in the book of Acts, the disciples in Jesus, they have a new identity in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians. In the verses right before our passage, Luke, the author, writes in verses 25 and 26 that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, Luke says, and when he had found him, he brought, the, brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. William James Jennings in his commentary writes that like a new song that announces a new time in present time, it may often seem and sound strange. Christian in the, in its plural form always equals a strange new future. And now this identity is being put to the test. I want to talk about just two things for us under this topic, the spirit of solidarity. I want to talk about scarcity and solidarity. Scarcity and solidarity. And at first glance, these these four verses, they seem almost like a byword, like, like Luke is about to transition back to Jerusalem and to more persecution in the early church. He's spent chapter 10 and 11 of Acts telling us about the first expansion, significant expansion of Christianity outside of the bounds of ethnic and, and cultural Judaism. Gentiles in large numbers are now turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. For salvation. It's so apparent in Antioch that these Jesus followers are not simply Jewish, that those outside of the church give the disciples a new name, Christians. And so these four verses uh, are the concluding lines in the chapter and all of the, the seemingly significant stuff like evangelism and conversion and discipleship. They've, it's already taken place, but I'm glad that these verses are here because it's, it's more like the icing on the cake than, than a byword, you know, like cake tastes good by itself, but you add some some icing to the cake and it takes it to another level. In fact, there's, there's some cakes, there's some cakes, like my favorite German chocolate cake that without the icing ain't nothing but chocolate cake. 
It don't get the name German chocolate till you, till you add the icing. So ice, icing, right, adds something to it. And so the, the expansion of the church uh, to Antioch is good by itself, but it's better with this picture of solidarity in the middle of scarcity. Luke says in verses 27 and 28 that now in these days, he says, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, he, when he got up, he indicated, he foretold through the spirit that a great famine was about to come over the whole world. And Luke says this happened during the reign of Claudius. And the these days that, that Luke's talking about are the days that he just described in verse 26 with Barnabas going to Tarsus to look for Saul and bringing him back to Antioch so he can help him teach and, and disciple these new disciples. And so for a whole year, Luke says, right, they met in the church and they, they taught a great um, many people. And at some point in that year, some prophets came down uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch. And even though Antioch was... Uh, about 310 miles north of Jerusalem, they came down from Jerusalem because it was higher in elevation. So in the Bible, people are either always going up to Jerusalem or coming down from Jerusalem. So some prophets came down to Antioch and in laying the foundation of the church, you had not only apostles, but these New Testament prophets, as Paul will say in Ephesians, that the household of God is built on the apostles and the prophets and these these traveling itinerant prophets came to Antioch with with a message during one of those times that Barnabas and Saul were meeting with the church one of the prophets Agabus he he got up uh, and by revelation from the Holy Spirit said there is a great famine coming and it's going to be over the whole world now, all the world meant all the Roman world or over the whole Roman Empire, as we might say. So at a time of what we might call great spiritual prosperity in Antioch, Agabus proclaims a message about great physical scarcity and suffering. He's predicting the future before it happens, and Luke places this prediction in time and space. He says this period of great scarcity and lack that they predicted is the famine that took place during the reign of Claudius. Claudius was the Roman emperor from AD 41 to 54, and his reign was marked by a long series of crop failures in various parts of the empire during his years. These places included Judea and Rome and Egypt and Greece. Egyptian documents uh, reveal a significant flooding of the Nile River in AD 45 that resulted in famine and, and sent grain prices through the roof over the whole empire. The famine spread to Judea during AD 46 to 48. And Luke is careful to let us know that the events he's talking about are very real events. The church in Antioch got an early warning about the famine, and it's, it's probably the case 
that the church in Jerusalem also got the early warning too because that's where the prophets came from. And the question, the question is kind of just hanging out there. In response to this prediction of disaster, this prediction of scarcity, what is the church in Antioch going to do? The prophets weren't sent to Antioch by the apostles like Barnabas had been sent. They didn't come with instructions on what to do. They didn't come to take an offering to ask for help on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. They uh, They just came with a prediction of what was going to happen and what was the church in Antioch going to do. We know what they did. It's right here in front of us. But the answer was not obvious. Right, let me ask you this question, right? Like, what happens around here in the DMV uh, when the local meteorologist predicts, like, a major snowstorm is coming? You know, like, one of those 18 to 24 inches is, is, is about to come in a, in, a, in, a, in a few days, right? What do we do? We, we run as fast as we can to the store and we get up all the shovels and all the ice milk and all the milk and all of the bread and all of the butter and all of the things we think we're going to need to ride out the storm. We pile it up in our homes because we want to make sure that we don't suffer any lack of anything we need when that storm hits. What makes us think that the prediction of impending famine wouldn't have produced the same sort of look-out-for-yourself basic instinct that the threat of suffering produces for us. What makes us think that the sense of protecting yourself during a time of, of loss and scarcity would be any different for them than it is for us? What makes us think that their first inclination wouldn't have been to begin hoarding some food and materials and, uh, uh, and, and to ride out the famine? As one commentator put it, they might have reasoned we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to be of any help to others when the time comes. But that's not what they did. They responded to the prediction of great scarcity, great scarcity and lack with an expression of solidarity that only the Spirit of God could create. We're told in verses 29 and 30, it says, So among the disciples, as any had financial ability, each of them determined to send ministerial relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea, which they did by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What was going to happen when the Gentiles in the Antioch church find out that their Jewish family in the Judean church are in need? Will old divisions uh, uh, rear its head, or is this new identity for real? Will this new identity result in a new way of living and acting? Because they understood the gospel message that Barnabas and Saul were devoted to teaching them, the Antioch church's response was an immediate expression of love and care through sacrificial giving. 
And notice that it wasn't just the wealthy among them who said, we'll give out of our wealth. Back in Acts chapter 4, there's this wonderful expression and picture of sacrificial giving in the church when people who own lands and houses sold them and gave the money to the apostles so there wouldn't be any needy people in the church. And that's, but that's back when everybody was culturally Jewish. And people who had houses and, and lands, people who were well off participated. But here it's everybody. Each one of them determined according to their ability to send relief, whether they had much or had little, they wanted to participate in this ministerial relief. Who are they sending it to? They are sending it to their brothers and sisters who live in Judea and don't miss it. They understand we are now one people. There's a solidarity between us We're no longer divided, but are united in Jesus Christ. Here's what they understood. They understood that because they were bought with a price by the blood of Jesus, they now belong to God. They were not their own. And what this meant was that everything that they had belonged to God. Therefore, we must do with what we have out of obedience to Jesus. These believers in Antioch gave from what each had out of their obedience to the Lord Jesus. And it's not the picture of reluctance obedience. It's, it's the beautiful portrait of spontaneous love-driven obedience. And here's the picture Luke has been painting of how the message of the gospel the message of God's love for us in Jesus Christ creates a spirit-formed solidarity across dividing lines and a love-driven obedience to Jesus' command. Earlier in Acts, Peter breaks tradition at the command of God and he goes to fellowship with Gentiles in Caesarea. Then Luke tells us that when the persecution came after Stephen was martyred, the disciples were scattered. And it says some of them went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but they shared the good news about Jesus only with those who were Jewish. However, there were these men, Luke said, from Cyprus and Cyrene who decided to go to the Greeks. The the brothers from Cyprus and Cyrene went to the Greeks in obedience to Jesus. They understood that the gospel wasn't only for them and their kind. And now these disciples in Antioch, growing in the faith, understand that there's a new purpose even for their money. They were now connected to believers throughout the world across geographical and ethnic boundaries. And so their means, whatever, whether they had a lot or a little, were to be used to help their sisters and their brothers. And it's imperative. It is imperative that we do not miss the significance of this radical Gentile and Jewish solidarity in Jesus Christ. It is easy to overlook Jennings again. He asks a question in his commentary. He says, why have Gentile Christians forgotten their radical beginnings? He says, because it was too much for us to take in. Not only are we those outside of Israel who were never fully imagined to be brought in, but we grew in the cosmopolitan places of the diaspora through the in-between, he says, pedagogy, learning, and instruction of an in-between Barnabas and an ex-killer Paul. 
Luke saw this tension between a church of home and a church of the mixture, and he narrated our joining. This is what the Spirit of Jesus Christ does. He creates a union and a solidarity that is clearly supernatural. The greatest witness, the greatest testimony to the looking world that Jesus is who he claimed to be was not in the New Testament or even in this book of Acts was not the miracles that were performed. The greatest witness to the validation that Jesus was real was not the lame walking and the blind seeing. It was not the supernatural healings. It was the supernatural love across lines of deep division. It was the spirit-wrought reversal of of ancient hostilities and divisions and animosities. That the spirit did clearly what people could not. Without Jesus, practically everything I do and everything with everything I have is out of obedience to me. It's Jesus who calls us to take every thought captive out of obedience to him, including sacrificially entering in across lines of deep division and even hostilities. The Antioch church had to respond to Agabus's prophecy with, with answers to these questions. How are we to take God's word and apply it practically to our lives and to our community? How are we as a church going to reflect the love of Jesus Christ to others who are different than we are in response to this prophecy? It's not enough to talk about how grateful we might be for uh, our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to talk about the love of God and get good Bible teaching. It's, it's good to have all of those things and necessary because the church in Antioch couldn't have had better teaching. They were hearing directly from Barnabas and Saul. There was going to have to come a point where they would have to put what they had heard and said they believed into action and they would have have to put into action put it into action in a sacrificial and costly way couldn't be content to just use their resources for their own efforts everyone who follows Jesus gets the privilege of putting what we say we believe into practice in a sacrificial and costly way as my old pastor used to say Salvation is free, but it ain't cheap. It costs you everything. You have to love their expression of solidarity. In Acts chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, we read that the apostles in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas 
to Antioch to check out what was going on with all of these Gentiles turning to the Lord. And now the church of Antioch sends Barnabas together with Saul back to Judea, carrying the funds they had collected. They weren't hoarding their money. They weren't even hoarding their teachers. We're going to demonstrate our love and solidarity by sending you the best of what we have, both financially and ministerially. Imagine, imagine how humbled the churches in Judea were to receive much needed assistance from their Gentile brothers and sisters. Humbled but grateful to receive assistance they didn't ask for, but that was freely and sacrificially given when the need was identified. Imagine how encouraged and empowered the Antioch church was to know the Lord had used them to to further break down the standing, long-standing hostilities. This is grace. And this is what grace does. It humbles people without degrading them, and it exalts people without inflating them. This history of grace and solidarity in Acts 11, it belongs to the church's family album just as much as all of the ugly stuff we know about does. This picture of grace and solidarity is just as much a part of what belongs in, the, in our visioning and history of the church as all of the ugly stuff. And let me close with this, this question, this simple question. What are the divides in this community? What are the divides the partitions, the hostilities in this community, in this city that makes us desperate for the Holy Spirit to engender and sustain a supernatural solidarity expressed by this church, in this place, at this time, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Where is, where is the Spirit speaking to us about divides uh, that, we're, that we're content with, that, that we're content with, but that grieve him? It's easy and even some, in some ways attractive to, to keep talking about all of the ugly stuff and all of, all of the division and the hostilities. And, uh, but, but, but may God give us grace by the power of his spirit to go in, to go in on the side of a sacrificial solidarity, taking every thought captive for our obedience to Jesus Christ, that that same supernatural image of unity across lines and solidarity across lines of hostility and division that we see in these four simple verses might be the testimony that we exhibit in this place at this time to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
listen to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.